1985, a man named Dennis Newton was standing trial in an Oklahoma County District Court for armed robbery of three Circle K stores. And uh, as he was being tried, he decided his public defender was not cutting it, and he fired her. The judge, everybody said, don't do that. It's foolish to stand. Even trained lawyers don't stand in their own defense and, and defend themselves publicly. He said, no, I can do it. I've got it. And so the, the public defender stayed and continued to watch the trial unfold and told reporters later that he actually was doing a decent job at this until... One of the clerks of the, one of the stores was on the stand testifying, and he suddenly lost his cool, stood up, and said, you're a liar, I should have blown your head off, with a few expletives mixed in. There was a brief, awkward moment while he pondered this error, and then he fixed it by saying, if I'd been the one that was there. If I'd been the one that was there, that's my favorite part, not even if I'd done it, if I'd been the one that was there, then he sat back down. Next day, guess what? Public defender was back on the job. But even with her skill and experience, she couldn't fix what he had done. It took the jury 30 minutes to give him 30 years in prison uh, for these three armed robberies. It has been said that anyone who defends himself has a fool for a client. Right? If you are thinking you can stand up and make your best case before a judge. Well, we see here in this text that Paul is defending himself. And he's defending himself, again, against some of the most powerful people in his world. And even they, with all of their skill and all of their rhetoric and all of their position, remember last time they had hired a professional attorney, Tertullus, to come and plead their case for them. And yet here's Paul, standing up as his own attorney. Now, it was normal in that, in that instance for him to do so. We have to give him that. And he has some things on Dennis Newton. First of all, he's a little more clever and a little more in control of his faculties. And secondly, he hasn't done anything wrong. And so we see that as Paul is being dragged from forum to forum to stand before different uh, rulers and governors, and ultimately he will be heading on his way, as you heard, to Caesar, that he knows he is innocent, and he knows that God is in control, and that all of this fits into God's plan for Paul's life as the apostle to the Gentiles. To briefly recap, Paul finally came back to Jerusalem after the third missionary journey. Everyone was telling him, don't go. They're waiting for you there. You'll be in huge trouble. He said, I know I'm going to leave in chains, but I have to go. He went, and as he was in the, the Jewish temple, a crowd formed. They accused him of some stuff he hadn't done. They, they were beating him and beating him, and the Roman commander came in and arrested him for his own safety. And when he heard about a, a plot by these 40 Sicarii assassins that they were going to, when he was en route from one place to the other, they were going to attack and stab him to death. He said, forget this, I am going to bring you to Caesarea, the capital, the true capital of this province. I'm going to bring you to Governor Felix. He'll hear the case. And if these people from the Jewish temple want to come and plead their case as well, all will be sorted out. And all would have been sorted out if Governor Felix had been a good, upright, and just ruler. He was not, though. 
And so what happened was he thought, I'll do a favor to these Jews. They don't like this Paul. And he just left him there in prison for two years. Now, granted, it was a liberal prison. He could be visited by friends because he was a Roman citizen. They could bring him clothes, food. They could care for him. They could bring in doctors if he needed them. But for a guy who'd been around the world three times preaching the gospel and undoubtedly wanted to go again, this was probably torture to some degree. Now, chapter 24 that we saw last time, and we began with this time, verse 27, ends with the news that after two years, Felix was removed from that post. Now, it doesn't tell us why. Josephus does, and we know from other sources. The reason he was removed is because he had dealt brutally with the Jews. There had been an uprising of some kind, or at least there had been some kind of conflict between the Jews and Gentiles in Caesarea, and Felix had come down like the vengeful striking hammer of Zeus or something, but all of his might and anger and wrath seemed to be on the Jewish side. And so the Jewish leadership flexed some of the muscle that they had and used some of the influence, cashed in some favors, and got him deposed from that position. In fact, if his brother hadn't been a very prominent man in the Roman world, he probably would have had a very serious a sentence of his own. It's clear that Tertullus, that uh, attorney, was lying when he said to Felix, oh, we're so thankful for you that you've come up as our leader, that you have become this source of peace and harmony here. No, he had been a very brutal and vicious man. And so now we find a trial with a new judge, a new governor, but it's barely a trial. They do set everything up, and they convene the trial. There's a technical word used here, which means this isn't like when Lysias just said, hey, come here, bring the guy here, what's going on, fill me in. No, this is actually a, a very formal thing that starts to happen. All of the elements are here, but it only goes for a month. This is like when, when Mike Tyson would like knock out Marvis Frazier in 30 seconds, and you're like, everyone thought we were going to see something, but I guess not. No, what happens is that Paul pulls out his biggest card, the nuclear option, and plays it, which is the appeal to Caesar. And that puts a stop immediately to the trial, but more importantly, it saves him from another plot to kill him. You see, they had intended to get this new guy, Festus, to bring Paul from Caesarea back to Jerusalem, and even though he'd be under Roman guard, they were planning to attack and somehow assassinate Paul. So it's not much of a trial, but again, all the elements of the trial are there. All of the elements of a regular courtroom. We have the accusers. Let's, let's look at these guys. These are the highest holy positions in all of Israel. The priests, the elders, probably this is shorthand for at least some of the members of the Sanhedrin, the high ruling council. And what do we find them doing? Plotting a murder. These are the people who are going to bring accusation against Paul. They've decided that they can't have him one more moment breathing the air of Israel, and they are going to do away with them. So these men who are entrusted to uphold the law, the law of God, entrusted by Rome to uphold a certain amount of civil law as well, are now doing everything they can to circumvent the law and take care of Paul kind of vigilante style. And why is this? How, how can it be that these holy men are about to do this horrible thing? Partly, perhaps, because of how religious they are. 
You may surprise you that I say that. I'm always warning people against this whole, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, it's a relationship. No, we do have the true religion. The scriptures talk of the mystery of our religion. James talks about religion that is acceptable to God our Father. We don't want to all have our own little freestyle relationship. It's private, it's isolated. We do believe that Jesus Christ came to save us into something, but when you have religion and only religion, apart from repentance, the forgiveness of sins, faith in Christ, having been born again, when you have just religion, the outward forms, more often than not, not always, but more often than not, it does more harm than good. Occasionally, you see that someone is kept back from doing something wicked because of just outward religion, and God uses that, but still, for them, it does more harm than good by giving them false confidence in the flesh. And at this point in history, the religion had become so corrupt. And this happens again and again. I mean, think about all the way back with Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of the high priest, and how corrupt they were. This is something that we see happening regularly when people are given power as part of a religious position. And at this point in Roman slash Jewish history, the, the high priesthood and other influential positions were bought and sold. And the people who occupied them did not treat them as positions of, of service, where they would be the shepherds of God's people. Rather, they saw themselves more as predators. They, they fed off of God's people. So they had this power. The power had been corrupted and had corrupted them and now they see that Paul, even in chains, is a threat to that power. I'm so thankful that this sort of thing has never happened in the history of the Christian church, because that would be embarrassing. Now, this also has happened again and again, where civil religion has taken the place of true piety, seeking after God where he may be found at the cross. Look at the Middle Ages. I mean, you find people who are bishops in name, but they're not really bishops. They're nobles who have been buying bishoprics. Like they're collecting those little spoons that people hang on the wall to show all the different places they've been. Only ironically, many of the bishops then hadn't even been to the places where they supposedly had dedicated their lives to serving God's church. And we see a similar thing here, just consolidating power. And it becomes very toxic very quickly. And you see how, how much Paul's on their mind. This new guy has been on the job three days, and it seems like one of the very first things they bring up with him is, you've got someone in jail. His name is Paul. Obviously, he's not doing much of anything because he's in prison, but we still want another crack at him. Right? They're scared. They're so scared that, I mean, last time there was a plot to kill Paul, the assassins came to the leadership and said, we'll do the deed. We just need a little help from you. This time, it's the leadership themselves, the priests and elders who are doing the plotting. It's possible they went to the same 40 assassins and said, listen, we will provide the opportunity if you will carry it out. This still happens today as well. When religion without repentance begins to corrupt someone, there's no limit to the depravity that can result. We, recently, a, a guy who's a, a pastor of a very large church, a guy who I respected in years past and have books by on my shelf, was found to have hired a hitman, or at least tried to, to get someone killed. Yikes! You say, how does that happen? Because someone starts thinking, I have a special relationship with God that no one else has. That's why I'm in this position. That's why I've been entrusted with this power. And that's why the rules don't 
apply to me. And that's why it's okay if I compromise here and compromise there. If you find yourself thinking that I, I know that Jesus came and he died and all sinners can come to God through him, but I have this special thing that no one else has, let me give you a word. No, you don't. You absolutely don't. That is the kind of thinking the enemy will use to corrupt us and to make us begin to think of ourselves as the end of our faith rather than glorifying God and loving him forever. So we have the accusers. Now we have the judge. He's a new judge. He's not Felix. He's Festus. People confuse these two because they both have funny names that start with F. They're both mentioned briefly right in the same section of the book of Acts. And they both have the same job. But other than that, they're very different guys. Very different guys. Remember, we said that Felix's thing was procrastinating. He was kicking the can down the road continually. Remember, Paul's in jail for two years. He's, he's continually listening to Paul, but never making any decision of any kind one way or the other. Festus is the opposite. When he takes over, he hits the ground running. Imagine, you arrive in the province you're going to lead as the proconsul. You're, 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 there, you're there in charge, and you just saw... Bad things can happen if you don't do a good job because you're replacing somebody who was disgraced and almost probably imprisoned or banished or beheaded. And as you go into this position, you think, maybe I should take some time to sort of just rest, prepare, get settled in. This is a big deal. No, he immediately seems to say, all right, this is an order here in Caesarea. I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, he goes to Jerusalem first because, well, Caesarea is technically the capital Many people, much of the populace of the area, thought of Jerusalem as the real power center, maybe even the real capital, kind of like the situation now in that part of the world. And so he goes there to connect with the Jewish leadership, and he goes there because he knows that they have a bad taste in their mouth from his predecessor, and he wants to set this right. He's a man of action. He's a man who says, let's get something done. Felix had been putting off any decision about Paul to try and milk the situation as long as he could. He wanted to get a bribe from Paul. He wanted to have a favor owed to him by the elders and the priests. He wanted to make this all work in his favor. Not so Festus. Festus just says, you know what? I'm going to get all the backlog of all those old cases dealt with. And we're going to deal with them once and for all. And one of those cases, of course, is the case of Paul. And you'd think... That after two years, maybe the leadership would have forgotten about him, right? Or at least their anger about it, their rage would have simmered down a little bit. They'd say, just leave him in jail. He can't do much of anything there. But no, he's still front and center in their mind. He's still up in their kitchen, as it says in the Talmud, right? He's living rent-free in their heads, and even in chains, he's a big problem for them. And so they request, in fact, if you, if you take the word urgently, along with the tense that's used here for this verb, we probably could, and maybe even should, translate it that they kept on requesting urgently that he would transfer Paul from Jerusalem up to Caesarea. They want him on the open road so that they can kill him. Festus, though, is quite decisive, and he refuses to be manipulated. And so he says, if you want another crack at this guy, you want to prosecute him, fine. Come back with me to Caesarea. We'll deal with it right away. No time like the present. It's almost like he was listening to my sermon uh, on Acts chapter 24. 
And so we have the judge, we have the accusers, and when they all arrive back together eight to ten days later in Caesarea, we have the defendant waiting there in chains, although under house arrest. Here he is to defend himself. He's been waiting two years, undoubtedly two long years. And for him, it may have felt almost like a punishment because he also is a man of action. He probably wanted to be at 15, 20 different churches in that time. And yet here he is, stuck. And sometimes this is the best thing that can happen for us. In fact, we took a moment away from Acts last week to talk about this. When God maketh us lie down in green pastures, when we were going to just keep on going, going, going till we collapsed. Paul has here a gift, two years to recover. We know some of the the toll that these travels have taken on him physically, and undoubtedly they also took a toll on him in other ways. He has time now to rest. He has time to recover. He has time to learn that all-important lesson that we all need to learn. God doesn't need me. Because if you're Apostle Paul, you might start feeling like God does need me. But here he is out of the equation, yet the church goes on. And Jesus' name is still proclaimed and lifted up. We have two years where Luke is now in Palestine, and he can do his research. He can learn about things, gather information, interview eyewitnesses, and it's likely that it's during this two years that he wrote his gospel and sent it off to Theophilus. Oftentimes, these forced, sequestered times, these forced sabbaticals, are a great gift. And we see that historically. Think about John on Patmos having these visions and writing down the revelation. Think about Luther trapped in Wartburg Castle there where he's, he's translating the New Testament into German. Think about uh, the great Baptist, John Bunyan, in Bedford Jail. And there, what does he do? Just pine away and say, oh, I'm wasting time. No, he writes A Pilgrim's Progress. Time to be still. Only here's the thing. None of us are ever really still. I mean, I'm not talking about how Alex is always fidgeting. I'm talking about how we're all moving all the time. And this is something good to remember when you say, oh, these circumstances. I'm a victim of circumstance and and things aren't working for me. They're working against me. Think about this. At the moment and at every moment, We are on the outside of a globe that is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. Do you feel like you're going 1,000 miles an hour now? I don't get people who don't want to get on the Gravitron at the fair. It's just a little bit more. You're already going 1,000 miles an hour. Now, that globe is going around the sun at 66,000 miles per hour. We are hurtling through space. The sun is moving through the Milky Way at 483,000 miles an hour. And I read not long ago that we think the Milky Way is tearing through the universe at 1.3 million miles an hour. Are you nervous about that? Because think about this, the same God who set those forces in motion in a way where we don't even think about it because we know it's all working out is the God who is sovereign over your life and where you are in this moment and your situation. You're never a victim of circumstance. You are one who serves a sovereign God and holy, all-powerful God. That's our defendant. He knows that he serves an all-powerful God. And then you have the final piece of the equation for a trial, and that is the charges. And they're not rehashed entirely, but we can tell by Paul's defense that they bring up the same three categories as every single time. Sacrilege, sectarianism, and sedition. 
that he has committed crimes against temple law, against uh, the temple itself, and against Rome itself. So he's, he's sinned against the Jewish people, the Jewish temple, and Caesar, essentially. These three categories of charges, we can see going all the way back into the Old Testament. For example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bow down and worship this statue. They say, no, we won't. And that's essentially what they're charged with. You're not very patriotic. This is traitorous. You are following a religion that has been banned, and you are not falling in line with our shared values. And so into the furnace you go. And around the world today, Christians continue to face these three Charges, first of all, that they don't follow the same customs and values as the people all around them. And of course, we acknowledge right off the bat, that's true. From the world's point of view, we follow odd, backwards priorities and have outdated values. In the West, ironically, this looks like people refusing to embrace relativism. People insisting there still is truth and error. There still is right and wrong. And because they say there still is truth and error, and there still is right and wrong, they're told, that's an error, and you're wrong, and you ought to be punished, or at least marked. That makes a whole ton of sense. Secondly, people are told that they do not follow the official religion, and therefore they must suffer. This is obviously most clear somewhere like Saudi Arabia or uh, Burma, where life is incredibly hard for someone who's not a Muslim or not a Buddhist, not part of the, the majority official religion. But even in America, where there's no state religion, we see more and more that an increasingly secular society uses increasingly dogmatic, even religious language to carry out these sort of low-key mini-inquisitions. Maybe online, on Twitter, maybe in the local community, if you own a business or something, testing the waters against heretics who dare to not conform to the standards of this world, whatever they happen to be at the moment on shifting sand as they are. And three, treason. Again, this is something we don't really see in America at the moment, but in much of the world, for example, in, in China, if you follow Jesus, you're branded as a traitor for having a Lord other than the one that the state has decreed you should have. The state recognizes only one head, and that is not Jesus Christ. And wherever we live, this must be our position. Only God is sovereign. Only He is in control, and He alone has my final allegiance. It wasn't too long after these events that the real Roman persecution of Christianity commenced. And you could be arrested and ultimately could be put to death simply for being a Christian. And one real quick way for them to determine if someone was, in fact, worthy of arresting and being tried for being a Christian was simply to say to them, Kurios Kaiser, which means Caesar is Lord. And if they responded, Kurios Kaiser, yeah, hail Caesar, big, big fan of Caesar then they're okay. If they said, Kurios Christos, Christ is Lord, they were now in those three categories. And so this is the, the three things that are laid down. In fact, we read they laid many grievous complaints against Paul, probably a lot of things fitting into those three categories. Since they have no proof, no evidence, they decide why not just up the rhetoric of the charges in lieu of actual evidence. Watch out for this, by the way. This happens today as well. Oh, I can't prove that that person did anything, but they're really, oh, they get under my skin, so why don't we up what we're accusing them of? Make it more shrill, more extreme. 
And so that people will hear it and think, well, if even half of that is true, if there's even a kernel of truth in it, yeah, but what if it's all a lie, like it is here? This is something that we deal with just as much as they do in lands where there are much higher stakes, where following Jesus means you may be thrown in prison. And in some ways, it's more difficult for us to see the path to standing boldly in defense of the gospel, like the apostle does here, because the stakes don't seem as high to us. There's no plots to kill me that I know of. If you know of one, please tell me. There's no prison waiting for me for following Christ. And so those who would have been broken all at once by some sort of true outward persecution might be just chipped away at over time, where it's culture and society that's doing the the slow persecution, the -the under-the-radar persecution. Drip, drip, drip. It's much like the serpent in the garden. He doesn't come and bare his fangs and say, eat that apple or I will bite you and inject you with venom. No. He says, did God really say? That could be the tagline of the American church these days in many quarters. And so comes the compromise. The one area in which Festus was like Felix. He wanted to do the Jewish leadership a favor, we're told. Although it seems to me that his intentions were certainly better. Festus is concerned. He's conscious of how Felix left office, disgraced and forced out by the Jews, and he's probably hoping to extend an olive branch, mend defense, and kind of get things back on the right path. And yet, in doing this, he actually steps off the right road. And, and we're told by everyone who writes about Festus that he was more just and more fair and, and a far better and more honorable leader than anyone who came in the, in the few leaders before him or after him. But in this instance, what we have is, you know, this, the, the picture of, of Lady Justice blindfold holding the scales and she can't see because her eyes are covered, except Festus is kind of <laughs> pulling it aside and, and taking a peek to see who's who, and, and who can do what for whom. And yes, he knows Paul's a citizen, and Paul deserves justice, but he's only one guy. And in the grand scheme of things, he's probably going to just disappear into the sunset if he lets him go. These temple leaders, elders, and priests, he's going to have to deal with them as long as he holds this position. And so, hey, it's politics, right? You play the game, and so he plays it, or he tries to, And yet, first and foremost, his role is to dispense true, disinterested justice. He wants to curry favor. And I think we see this in the church today as well. There is a slow drift toward, we were talking about this in uh, our Sunday school class, away from proclaiming, here's the law, it shows you that you're a sinner and your need for the gospel, and here's the gospel. Here's the salve for your soul. You're broken by the law, and you're given life by the gospel. Instead, we say, oh, here's the gospel, and people go, what do I do with this thing? I'm not sick. I don't need a cure. Well, we want to curry favor now, and then later cash that in to tell people about Jesus. Only it doesn't work that way. We already have God's favor. We don't need to curry favor now. And we know that friendship with the world, as good as it might feel in the moment, is to be an enemy of God. We know because the scriptures tell us. And yet we fall into people-pleasing. Pastors can even fall into this. I mean, maybe not me, but other pastors. No, we all can. It, it, It feels good. It feels good to please people and get a pat on the back. And it's easy to slowly slide into, well, 
the world doesn't want to hear about certain things, so I'll just put those in the back seat, on the back burner, and then maybe they fall off the back burner. And you can see how the, the ark will often move towards simply saying, God wants you to be the best you you can be and, and to be happy, and God wants you to be kind, and God wants you to do... In fact, what all the, the religions say, we all kind of say the same thing, and yet there is a need for a Savior. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those who have not believed on the Son stand condemned already. I do believe that Festus approaches this in a better way. He's more politic, he's more subtle, and he's more honorable in doing it. He could have just decreed, all right, man, you're going back to Jerusalem. But he actually asks Paul, which seems kind of odd to me. Are you willing to go back to Jerusalem? And I will try you there with them accusing you. It sounds like he will still preside over the trial. I don't think that could have been the plan, because how would he think he was doing them a favor in that case? He wanted to do them a favor. But all the same, Paul hears that, some kind of alarm bell goes off, and he says, I appeal to Caesar. In Roman jurisprudence, there is something called the provocatio, and it was established way back in the 6th century B.C., not long after Rome was founded as a city. It was originally the provocatio ad populum, which meant uh, the appeal to the people. But as the kind of governance changed a bit and was, power was centralized, it became an appeal to Caesar. It guaranteed the right of a citizen to appeal to the top when it had to do with maybe the death penalty or something very serious like that. And Paul can see where this is going, and so he's ready with this card to play. He knows if he's sent back to Jerusalem, best case scenario, the people who right now are his accusers are there going to be his judges, if he even arrives alive and well. But he knows they were making a plot before, his nephew told him. And now he says, I'm not willing to chance it. In the Jemison Fawcett Brown commentary, which I always consult because I love it, they put it this way, and this is why I love it. Listen to this wording. When the only other alternative offered him was to give his own consent to be transferred to the great hotbed of plots against his life and to a tribunal of unscrupulous and bloodthirsty ecclesiastics whose vociferous cries for his death had scarcely subsided, no other course was open to him. But add to that the fact that he knew he was called by God to proclaim the gospel before kings and rulers and governors, and here's a big opportunity to proclaim before the biggest of rulers, the Caesar, the emperor. Now, Caesarea was the proper place for a Roman citizen to be tried. He says that, I'm standing here by Caesar's judgment seat. That's where I belong. Hear my case here, and if you don't, provocatio. It's like on Pirates of the Caribbean when they say parlay, and you're like, oh, I guess we can't do anything else until we get you where you need to be. Luke has mentioned, by the way, three emperors by name in Luke and Acts. He's talked about Augustus, Tiberius, and Claudius, but he doesn't mention who this one is. Does anyone know what, what Caesar he is appealing to? Nero! It's Nero! Are you kidding me? Who appeals to Nero? Nero, who's burning down half the city, persecuting Christians, almost certainly the beast of the book of Revelation. We have to recognize this is early Nero. This is Nero being tutored by Cicero. This is Nero who's, uh, or Seneca rather, this is, this is Nero who's actually pretty calm and level-headed and just. And so it's a smart move at the moment. 
Soon, though, Nero is going to el snapo, and he's going to go nuts, and he's going to not be someone you want to be dragged before, not someone whose, whose hands you want your life resting in. Whole thing, I think, works out perfect for Festus. Like Pilate washing his hands of Jesus' fate, Festus is now free of the responsibility. It looks like, hey, I tried, and he's tried to do a favor for the Jewish leadership. He doesn't have to hear the case or make any controversial statements or proclamations or verdicts on his first or third or tenth day. He checks with his advisors. They determine, yeah, he's got the right to appeal to Caesar. And he says, and to me it sounds a little bit catty, but maybe that's lost in translation. You want to go to Caesar? To Caesar, you will go. We know that this is something that God has seen and foreseen and laid out from long before Paul even encountered Christ on that Damascus road. We know that on that day, God says of Paul, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel he will be. He is going to bring my name into the presence of kings and Gentiles. And he is going to bring my my name into the presence of Caesar. Nero, even. Now, it's important to note that in verse 26, Paul is actually going to call Caesar Lord, Kurios. And you might go, wait a minute. You just said a minute ago that all the Christians said, no, 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 Kurios, Christ, not Kurios, Kaiser. But recognize that this word, it's kind of like our word, sir. Like, like Lord in like the, the British like sense, right? You're watching a little Downton Abbey, there's Lord or something. It's, it's, in fact, the word Señor is used if you're reading a Spanish Bible, which always sort of cracks me up a little because I think of people calling God like Mr. God. But the word Señor means Lord or Sir. It's a sign of respect. And he uses it in regards to Nero, yes, But Paul, even though he acknowledges that Caesar is an authority over him and appeals to the top of the chain of command, he he can do that because his trust is not in Caesar. Caesar's not his lord. He's just sir. And even when Rome will put Paul to death by separating his head from his body, Paul knows he's truly appealed to the top, not to Caesar, but to Christ himself. Not to a great king, but to the king of kings. Not just to one of the lords, lowercase l, but to the lord of lords. And just like he will inevitably now stand before Caesar, in fact, next week we're going to see Agrippa say, hey, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could let him go, but now he's got to go. Just like he will inevitably stand before Caesar because he made that appeal, one day he will stand before Jesus and receive his reward. He may be sitting on a judgment seat. And, and Paul refers to Festus sitting on the judgment seat of Rome. But Christ is the one who sits on the judgment seat. And thank God that because his blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in that greater tabernacle, we stand spotless before him. It is easy to become afraid in this world. It is easy to hear rumblings of three very serious charges being made against Christians and think, Maybe I ought to do somebody a favor. Maybe I ought to compromise a little bit. Maybe I ought to pull a Felix or just a Festus. Maybe I should be looking at dulling the sharp edge just for a while, gain some favor, then later on I'll say, this is the real good stuff. It's easy to fall into that trap. But what does Paul do but double down? 
I will go all the way to the top. I will go as far as it takes. I will bring the message of Jesus all the way to the ends of the earth, to the top of the pyramid. I will bring the message that Christ died for sinners, of whom I am the worst, into the very chamber of Caesar himself. May we have that spirit rather than the former. May we have a spirit that doesn't say, hmm, well, it's politics, you play the game, how do I do this best? And rather say, how can I be most faithful? How far must I take this and be willing to go, like Paul, to double down on our commitment to Christ and to bring the gospel with us, even to Caesar? Lord, we thank you that Paul brought this gospel to the ends of the earth, was willing to bring the gospel unto Caesar, was willing to go the extra mile and go all the way to the top, and he, if he was afraid, Lord, didn't show it, that he trusted in you, that he trusted that you were sovereign, he trusted that you were in control, that this guy, while he sat in that house, Lord, we know he was spinning at a thousand miles an hour and, and revolving at 66,000 miles an hour, Lord, you were in control. You are in control of all of it. And we pray that we would remember that, that you would keep that on our hearts and on our minds as we go about our lives, as we go out into the icy mission field that is the world around us, Lord, that we would remember you are in control. And when it sometimes seems scary to hold to the faith, once for all handed down to the saints, that we would not be afraid, but that we would trust in you. That we would remember the God that, that keeps everything spinning around in perfect, perfect harmony. And Lord, the God who, who set all of this in motion and created the universe out of nothing is the God who said, go and make disciples of all nations. Lord, may we be emboldened by Paul's example. May we be emboldened. May we be willing to sit when you maketh us lie down and ready to stand when you give us the opportunity to go into the presence of someone who does not know the gospel, whether they be the highest king in the land or the lowliest peasant, and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen.